if someone comes to you, whether this is your partner or a friend or someone online or whatever, if someone comes to you and is vulnerable enough to share the fact that like, hey, this particular way that you communicated or this word that you used hurt my feelings, you know, and maybe they will go ahead and offer up it hurt my feelings because I have this particular history with that word. And that's why or maybe they won't offer why maybe they'll just say that that hurt, you know, that caused harm. Believe it. I don't know how else to elaborate that. Just like, believe that. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about the power of words in relationships and beyond. Language is an incredibly powerful tool that can lift people up and bring them together, or it can push people apart and tear them down. And so in today's episode, we're talking about language and many of the ways that it can have an impact on our lives. Everything from how it affects our impressions of people, how it can predict whether our relationships are going to last and be happy, as well as some ways that our language can be hurtful and some ways of thinking about changing our language in a positive way to make the world a better place. So I would like to start out with this wonderful quote by Ijeoma Oluo, uh, who is the author of so you want to talk about race, which is an amazing book that I have been reading. I just finished it. Um, and she spe- this this quote is about race. It's about talking about race and how important it is to do so. And the quote is words matter. And I'm not just saying that because they are my job. Words help us interpret our world and can be used to change the way in which we think and act. Words are always at the heart of all our problems and the beginning of all our solutions. I think that's yeah. It's very deep and true because words yeah. can tear people down, but they also are like the start of change and the start of making things happen, hopefully for the better. Well, without getting too philosophical here, but it's like our language are just like these tiny little packets of information that are just a combination of sounds, but that have so much meaning applied to them and kind of like pick up all this meaning along the way. It almost, when I say it that way, it makes me think of some kind of weird sci-fi technology. Hmm. Perhaps cool. language came from ancient aliens and it is a oh, sci-fi technology. I heard, I'm sure there are people out there who believe that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you couldn't hear it in the audio, I was doing the, the ancient aliens hand gesture while I said good. that, just for the listeners good. to sort of get the full picture. Good, yeah, I mean, but just again, this is not quite on the topic we're talking about today, but there have been lots of studies about the way that our language, like the grammar of our actual language that we speak, not just the words we choose to use, which is what this episode's about, but actually like what language we're born into changes the way we think about things. And some people theorize it makes things like programmers 
are uh, more often from certain countries because of potentially the way their language is structured may cause people to think through things differently in a way that might lend itself to that or not. It's it's a super fascinating field of like how all the ways that language affects us. But today we're kind of more just on word choice, right? Yeah, I know. I've also read some studies and some theories about like the way that your particular language's grammar is laid out. And the way that you read that grammar, like whether you read up to down or left to right mm. or right to left, uh, has, sometimes has an influence on art as well, as far as like composition and flow of I art. I can say that. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. But let's start at the personal level and talk about just like language as it applies to us personally, as it applies in our romantic relationships and other types of relationships as well. I think we get a lot of questions about labeling relationships all the time. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, when do I apply the monogamous label? When can I officially apply the polyamorous label? When... Or the boyfriend or girlfriend label? Yes, that too. Or when you know, can I call myself label? solo poly or relationship anarchist? Exactly. Or, or does yeah. this count as monogamous or not? Can I use this label? Do I right. count as a relationship anarchist or... I love the, or yeah, I love the label of swinger. I hate the label of swinger. I don't do any labels whatsoever, you mm -hmm. know, stuff like that. And yeah, like the relationship labeling. Um, God, Emily, did you write here going steady? <laughs> I did write going 40s? steady, which That's is good. hilarious. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I feel like my grandmother like definitely asked me that about my first boyfriend back in the oh, day. Are we all nice. going steady? Right. I suppose we are. Well, yeah. no, I mean, now we have the label of exclusive. Right? Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Exclusive. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Or questions yeah. of like, should I use the term boyfriend or girlfriend, or should I say partner, or should I say date mate, or should I say date friends mate? With benefits? I haven't heard that. Yeah, date mate. You know, kind of for like someone you go on dates with. Uh, okay. That's okay. all I can okay. tell you. I've never okay. used the term. Cool. So. No, it wow. just it's it seems more like it'd be, it'd be like a brand of lube or something. Date mate. Date mate. <laughs> Cheese, I like that. <laughs> or or condoms, or I don't know something. <laughs> what if it's a specialized caddy or like little basket that you carry your dates in? Exactly, when them as a snack. Oh, yes. actual like My fruit jewel dates. dates. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Love jewel dates with some peanut butter. Yeah. I I highly recommend that everyone. But anyways, yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah. To, but but there's more. I mean, okay. I think we also get uh, into the weeds with people asking about uh, you know like using the labels of primary and secondary. Mm -hmm. You know, and what those labels might mean and all the connotations and expectations attached to them. Same with if I label you as my comment partner or just my friend with benefits or things like that. And then, of course, the uh, long ongoing conversation about labels related to identity, like especially sexual orientation and gender, you know, um, watching the way that our labels for different identities have changed over time as well. And how there's now, I think because of the internet, a big proliferation of new labels, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I feel like I'm learning a new one all the time. Like I was introduced to the term Q-U-O-I-R-O-M-A-T-I-C. Well, let me spell it for you. Q-U-O-I-R-O-M-A-N-T-I-C. Quoiromantic. Quoiromantic? Like French? Quoiromantic. Quoiromantic. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What does it mean? And this is part this is sometimes considered part of the um ace spectrum of like asexual, mm. demisexual, demiromantic, aromantic, things like that, that the qua romantic or qua romantic experience may include so like little romantic? No, more of being unsure what romantic attraction even is for you. 
Hmm. Okay, so there's more like quoi, like romance? Like yeah, quoi? yeah. What? Or finding the concept of romance <laughs> to be inaccessible, you know, or just kind of disidentifying in some way okay. with yeah. that concept. Yeah. Wow, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, which I, I found, I was like, what is this? And then I found that an alternative for this term is also what romantic okay. as well. Okay. Romantic, so, yeah. exactly. Quoi. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting because I... Definitely. I think we talked about this in a previous episode a little bit, but like when can one label oneself as a thing? And I know I personally had a hard time for many, many years labeling myself as bisexual, even though now I'm mm. like, uh-huh. Yeah. But once you once you I earned am. enough bisexual points and cashed <laughs> them in it? on your there bisexual you loyalty maybe club that's card. It. Maybe that's it. <laughs> I had to, uh, yeah, yeah uh, put uh, put those points down and, and cash them in with the bisexual <laughs> board yeah. directors. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's it's much easier now that you can track your points online and cash them in. You used to have it's to true. like keep physical tickets and mail them in. It was a real. Pain. You used to have to mail them, or sorry, <laughs> mail them in, and they would weigh them like the ticket thing at Chuck E. Cheese <laughs> right. to oh see gosh. how many tickets you had. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Okay, so. So here's the deal. So, right, there's this thing about labels, and we've talked about labels a bit before, about for some people, finding a label that fits them is very freeing. And for other people, finally letting go of labels is very freeing. But to look at it as far as language goes, part of the reason why this is important is because, like Dedeker was saying earlier, that language is this thing that words or phrases go along and they collect sort of other meanings or feelings or connotations or things that sort of get attached to them, right? And this has happened throughout history, literally for thousands of years, that we even now have words that we think of as two different words that used to mean exactly the same thing, but because of certain contexts, because of the languages they came from or the areas where they were used, they sort of developed totally different meanings. And so when we look at labels... That same sort of thing applies, and I think that's why it's so important when you're thinking about these labels to have a conversation with your partner or your friend or to really think for yourself, what does this label mean to me? What does it mean to you? What do I experience this label meaning to other people? Like, is this serving me or not? And what connotations might be coming with it? Yeah, what does society think about it? And what right. are, therefore I feel about it because of those societal expectations. Yeah. And so even if that's like, I really like this label, but there's some negative connotations to that, even being aware of that, though, can help you then if you use that term, like relationship anarchist, for example, is one that I identify with relationship anarchy, but I rarely use that label to identify myself anymore because I feel like it's picked up a lot more sort of negative and manipulative connotations over the years. Uh, and so I just tend to not go with that one right away and talk about it more as a concept rather than being that. But if I do bring it up in a certain context, I at least know, okay, People might have these sorts of connotations if they've heard the word at all. So I can expect that and then try to, you know, sort of address those things right away. And so I think that's why these labels are so important. Not just do you want them or not, but they're important because they do have meaning whether you like it or not. Okay, so along those lines, we are going to continue on with language and labeling and first impressions, because first impressions sort of 
are the beginning thing that you get. And sometimes like if somebody comes up and says, hey, I am X, that's the first impression that you have of them. And therefore, all of your like subsequent interactions with them are going to be colored by that first impression. So did you two know about this thing called the primacy effect? No, but it sounds like a great hit sci-fi novel. It totally yeah, kinda, does. Like a Michael Crichton novel. <laughs> Michael Crichton, that I yeah, read. the primacy yes. effect. <laughs> that I would have read back in like the 90s or the early yeah. 2000s. I love it. Um, okay, so the primacy effect is a psychological term. It refers to a person's ability to recall initial information better than information that's given to them later. So it's like this cognitive bias where, if, for example, if you're given a really long list of information and then you're asked to recall that, you can recall the things first on the list way better than the things that were later or at the end of the list. So first impression, oh, oh. first thing is the one that comes to mind most easily. Right. There is just for those of you who want to nerd out about this like I do, there is another effect called the recency effect, which is about things you've heard most recently. So with that list thing, that's why the stuff in the middle of the list is the stuff you forget. It's all the events that happened mm. in the middle of the movie that are easier to forget than the way it ended and the way it started. Now, it's funny you bring it back to the to entertainment, because one of my earliest, earliest lessons doing theater when I was just a tiny little baby child was the director of a play that I was in saying, like, people kind of remember the middle of a play, but the thing they're going to remember the most is the beginning and the end. So we really mm. got to stick the opening and stick the landing yeah. on this one, you collection of children. I've heard the oh. same thing with uh, practicing music. Like if you're practicing yeah. a piece on the mm. piano, it's make sure that you nail the beginning and you nail the ending. Try to do the rest of it, but those are the <laughs> ones that matter the most. There you go. So, okay, so let's talk about why this matters not just in theater and piano playing, um, <laughs> but in our daily lives. It, this is one of the reasons why first impressions are really so important, especially when your first impression of someone is given to you by somebody else. So, for example, a friend that you have introduces you to another person. And before the intro even takes place, your friend kind of primes you by saying, yeah, this person that we're meeting, they kind of have a tendency to exaggerate the truth, you know, so just so you know, or yeah, this person, like, I think they're a little bit of a narcissist, you know, or like whatever language they use or label they use, that impression is going to stick with you when you meet them, you're going to be primed and they are going to color the subsequent experiences that you have with them afterwards. And now those examples were like kind of negative you know, but it also shows up with positive examples as well. Yeah, exactly. So if somebody were instead to tell you like, oh, this this new person that you made, I love them. They're so cool. They're so kind and generous. Then your subsequent interactions with them, if they happen to like be having a bad day or say something kind of rude, you may give them the benefit of the doubt more because, again, your first interaction with them or your first impression with them that was given to you even by another person was one that was positive. So that's interesting. You might like excuse away their bad behavior. And that's just based on that first impression that was made. Right. And then to bring this back to the labels that we're talking about, the labels kind of do that for you. So even if you're not going in saying this person is good in this way or bad in this other way, if it's like, hey, this is my friend who's a polyamorous, <laughs> that's maybe not, not a great example. Or like they say, hey, this is my boyfriend, so-and-so. That like already that sort of given you some connotations. It's given you some information about things you're going to look for. 
And that might not be universal across all people, right? Someone might hear boyfriend and go, ugh. Or someone might hear boyfriend and go, oh, wow, I'm probably going to like this person because my friend likes them. More so than if they just said my friend or a guy I'm interested in or whatever it is, right? It's just kind of being aware of these. And then related to this is that it's not impossible to overcome negative primacy. It's not like first impressions are stuck forever. I think some people will try to say that, that like once you get a first impression, that's it, you're stuck. That's not, I don't believe that that's true. However, it is hard to overcome them. It takes time. It takes sort of a flexibility from the person perceiving. Um, And this is why, again, to go back to labels, things like the ways we talk about people in terms of stereotypes that go along with certain labels, whether those are about race or about gender or about their appearance or their profession or their types of relationships or their sexual identity or right there's so many that those stereotypes that come along with that prime us with these things just as if you had said hey this person has these traits it's kind of baked into those things and then the last thing i wanted to throw in here about this that i know i mentioned a while back on the show but this thing called the pygmalion effect or the Rosenthal effect, or the observer expectancy effect are all sort of different terms for a similar thing. And that's that your uh, thoughts about someone, like something you've been told about someone else, will not only affect the way you perceive them and make you more likely to pick up on things that support that idea and less likely to notice things that don't, but that actually in tests, uh, a lot of these specifically have been done with uh, school children is that your expectations of them will also affect what they do and how they do because of these very subtle ways in which your expectations are affecting the person that you're observing. Um, And that again, it can be overcome, but it's harder. It takes more work. And so when you go in with these stereotypes or these assumptions about people, not only are you going to be more likely to notice certain things about them, but it actually has the potential to make them more likely to do those things that you think they're going to do because in this subtle way, they're reading your cues and things like that. And it's going to make them do that. Super fascinating stuff. Yeah. And this cognitive bias of primacy, of course, extends so far beyond just how we deal with each other on a on a one to one kind of personal level. You know, I mean, we're also all living within this much bigger system where primacy has been going on for a long time. For instance, we've really been primed by our media and news outlets, especially when it comes to how we look at people who are different from us or people who are a different race from us or people who are a different sexuality from us. You know, I mean, a really common example is that like any like historically, anytime there's been news coverage of police brutality or a police shooting It's even as simple as like the first picture that you're going to see of the victim, especially if the victim is a person of color, is probably going to be grainy. They're probably going to pull a mugshot if that person has a record. They're going to pull like just something that makes them not look great and put that up next to like the police officers, usually the white police officers, like perfect police portrait where he's like tailored and clean and clean cut and like in front of the American flag. And even that is enough to start to prime you. You know, and especially with the way that they the words that they tend to use in these situations also primes you as well. Um, 
Same thing with uh, you know companies that have been running uh, marketing campaigns for a long, long time and have been involved in our culture for a long, long time that influences the items that we buy and the places that we choose to spend our money, the relationships that we have with politicians that we support or the people that we elect. It's it's you know this this primacy cognitive bias touches so many aspects of our society. All right, now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about. The Gottmans again, because we love those Gottmos. They're cool. Oh, they're, they're okay. They're fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would. I would have a beer with them. I guess. Uh huh. I yeah, would love I, to I ask think... some certain pointed questions too, Ooh, like, along okay. with that beer. You know. Okay. Yeah, I would have a pointed yeah. beer-driven conversation with the Gottmans. <laughs> anyway, sp- the way this relates to words is specifically about words of contempt, which is something that they have studied extensively within the context of relationships. Yeah. And they say that contempt, which a lot of toxic language can come out of contempt, uh, they say that it is the single biggest predictor of divorce out there. So if the Gottmans observe a couple that have a lot of contempt or a lot of like toxic language used in their relationship, then that's a huge red flag and probably a big sign that these two are in big trouble. Yeah. So contempt is part of the body of the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse, with which we have referenced many times on the show. And if you're not familiar with it, you know, if you just Google Gottman four horsemen, you'll find plenty of blog posts, plenty of articles uh, about their research on this. But contempt specifically can show up in relationships in many forms. And often it is literally related to the words that you use with your partner. So it's things like mean or dismissive language that is used for the purpose of harming your partner, things like name calling, uh, things like mimicking your partner or mocking them in a particular way or mocking the way that they said something. Um, and, and this is the kind of thing where like the mimicking is tricky because often when, when I see it show up, it doesn't show up as in someone unprompted decides to just like mimic their partner, and make fun of them. Often it comes when one partner's like repeating back what they heard the other partner say within a particular context that they'll put on a voice or put on just a little bit of a change in affect that maybe doesn't come across as like straight up harsh mimicking or mocking, but it is still an expression of contempt. You know, and especially when it's done with the partner sitting right there next to them. Yes, because I've seen this a lot going out with friends, and mm. you know, I definitely have some friends who their language that they use with one another is fairly contemptuous and fairly biting and fairly like unkind and ruthless with one another. And you may get these like sarcastic, mimicky moments between the two of them, and it's pretty uncomfortable, actually. Yeah. So sarcasm is another expression of contempt as well as hostile humor that happens at the expense of your partner. And now I know there's always someone out there who makes the claim, yeah, but this is just the humor that my partner I have. This is how we joke with each other. You know, we razz each other. And I'm not inclined to 100% disbelieve that. I do believe there are couples out there where that is part of their humor and part of their play with each other. But when that kind of play happens, in order for it to be supported and not truly be harmful to each other, behind it needs to be a really secure attachment and really solid Mm -hmm. relationship. And a lot of moments of also tenderness and care and repair, you know, so that you're able to kind of go out on a limb and poke your partner you know, and the two of you can poke each other in a playful way that isn't causing damage. But I feel like most of the time, though, someone's having less fun of a time than the other person is yeah, when I mean, hostile or sarcastic humor is the base of of the humor in the relationship. Yeah. And on the subject of contempt, 
not even just in our relationships, but even generally feeling contempt for other people has been shown to be terrible for your physical well-being. There's been various research studies over the years that have shown that those who are in contemptuous relationships, like their romantic relationships are contemptuous, are more likely to develop infectious diseases and have other uh, physical and emotional challenges than people who are in healthy relationships. And as far as like saying, yeah, I'm going to have more emotional issues when I'm in a contemptuous relationship than a healthy one is sort of like, yeah, obviously, of course. <laughs> but the fact but that it even affects, affects your physical. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about ways to reduce contempt in your relationship. Um, something that I talk to my clients a lot about, uh, something that the Gottmans write a lot about is this idea of negative sentiment override versus positive sentiment override. And these essentially refer to mental habits, your habitual perceptions about what your partner says or does. So as in, you can kind of build up enough negative story and narrative about your partner that can be based in truth. You know, it's not like you're just totally making it up out of nowhere, which means that then if your partner goes on to do or say something neutral or positive to you, you filter it through this expectation that what they actually mean is negative. They actually have an agenda. They're actually trying to say something to hurt me in that way. And the flip side of this is positive sentiment override, where essentially you have more resources in order to be able to give your partner the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean you let your partner just do whatever or say whatever, but it means you have enough of kind of this positive. I'm trying to think of another word for sentiment and I, positive, I can't positive right now. But it's, associations, feelings. Yes. Positive associations, feelings, secureness. It's like the benefit of the doubt. And, and yeah, even if, if I don't know, like the other day, for example, um, I was calling out to my partner because I was leaving and then he didn't respond. And I was like, did he just not hear me or was he like deliberately ignoring me? And those are like the two separate things. It's the right. negative sentiment override might be, okay, he was ignoring me. How dare he? Like, he clearly doesn't care about me. And the positive is like, oh shit, well, the air filter's on and it's really loud. So he probably just didn't hear me. Right. And that can really shift depending on not only the history of the whole relationship, but it could also be the history of what happened between the two of you that week or that day. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, that these aren't necessarily like like fixed, stuck, permanent mental states, but they can shift and change over time. So it is really important to be aware of that, of what's going on, uh, you know, as far as kind of like how is your brain primed to interpret your partner's words at any given time. Another thing to help reduce contempt or use of contemptuous words is to be proactive about the two of you talking about good times or happy times the two of you enjoy together. You know, I think that it's um, I feel like it's always a, uh, a butt of a joke of talking about someone coming over and like showing you all their vacation photos and stuff like that. <laughs> and my like mom does that whenever and I'll be honest, come over. <laughs> I don't really want to see that shit. Um, but in your relationship, like I think there is something really nice to actually taking time to sit down and look at like, oh, yeah, this trip that we took together two years ago or, oh, hey, this particular day, I think because of technology that makes it a lot easier to do now where it's like every service in the world wants to be like, you want to know what you were doing four years ago today? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, totally. Sometimes it's great. And sometimes, sometimes it's, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> but there is literally like a physiological effect and a bonding effect in kind of reliving and letting your nervous systems relive those good or happy times together as well. That helps prime you to, to be more likely to fall into that positive sentiment override and both give and receive positive language and non-contemptuous language to each other. 
So another way to get rid of contempt in your relationship is have stress uh, reducing conversations with one another. So this is another Gottman thing. It essentially boils down to like having talks with your partner where they are able to kind of vent to you for maybe 15 minutes or something. And you just, you know, you ask good like questions about, okay, what's happening and how can I help you? But you don't necessarily have to give them advice if they don't want it. This is a great opportunity to use the Triforce of Communication. But again, it's just sort of being there for your partner, letting them vent, letting them talk through their day and really listening, like employing very active listening skills as opposed to just, you know, asking the generic questions of, oh, how was your day? Fine. Instead, it really gives each other the opportunity to like dig deep and discuss something maybe that's been challenging for you and to really know that your partner is there for you. If people want to find out more about the stress reducing conversation formula, they can go to Multiamory episode 267. Oh, yeah, we talked about that fairly recently. Cool. I also take five minutes to tell each other how much you appreciate each other. This is really important just in general. Like we we do scrums, our like own radars between the three of us for our company. And at the end, we always do an appreciation round. And that's lovely because if it's been like contemptuous in any way or there's been challenging conversation, it's nice to go back and appreciate like how much you do care about that person. And so also finally instill an overall sense of fondness and positivity for one another. This is maybe easier said than done in certain relationships or maybe certain times within a relationship. But if you can do all of the things that we just discussed, hopefully it will start to instill that overall sense of fondness and positivity for one another and that positive sentiment override. Mm. Yeah. Another thing that Gottman's are big on is this idea of building a culture of fondness and appreciation. And I'm really big into this idea of like every relationship we make is like its own little microculture that we're constantly uh, building anew and Mm. learning to adjust to. And yeah, you know, I do think that there can be relationships where contemptuous language and contemptuous words are part of the culture of that relationship, unfortunately, you know, but it's become more normal. It's become more easy. It's become something that happens more frequently. And you can do the opposite. You can build a culture of sharing a lot of words of positivity or words of appreciation or words of fondness or admiration, but it does require work to build that. You know, it's not something that for very few people. Yeah. And to maintain it. I find for very few people, very few people are kind of, um, come pre-packaged with that (laughs) yeah i do say i want to say that the the telling each other how much you appreciate each other is something that i've found has really helped a lot in my own relationship with dedeker that that's something that we try to do fairly often not even as a formalized thing but just we'll kind of surprise each other with it randomly of like hey you know i I love this thing about you, or I think this is so cool that you are this way or that you can do this thing or that you know this thing, whatever, even if it's just some random little thing. And it just kind of, it just, it really does a lot to build that positive sentiment override and kind of reset yourself back to feeling more positive, at least about that relationship, especially during times when one or both of us are feeling kind of burned out or stressed or something about work or kind of in our lives more generally. 
Yeah. I've always thought that the two of you are really good at doing that. Aww. Well done. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. It's helped because I'm definitely a classic example of one of those people that really didn't come with this baked into my cake already. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, didn't really like get any real strong examples of, uh, you know, cultures of appreciation and stuff, at least not in my family of origin and in most of my adult relationships. And so it's nice that in my more recent adult life, um, and by recent, I would say the last five or six years or so. Um, oh, the whole been, time you've been with Jace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just with Jace. It's with uh, other people also. Sure, but it sure. helps. I mean, yeah. in conclusion with all of this, over time, words and the culture of words in your relationship can make or break your connection. Words can change the subconscious view that you or your partner has on your relationship. And remember that certain words can carry more emotional impact to one person than they do to another. So some examples of this, like if you were ridiculed by one of your parents about your work ethic or told that you were lazy, um, your partner might casually tease you about you procrastinating and about how it takes you a long time to finish a task. And that might feel just more cutting and more upsetting than your partner probably originally intended it to feel. Poof. Yeah, this this one hits home both in terms of things I've found for myself where like, I'll get much more upset by a comment, like something that the two of you will say, or that someone will say about me Whoops. that I'll get, <laughs> and we've all talked about it before. You know, we talk sure, about sure. this regularly, yeah, yeah. but something where I'm just sort of like, Hey, you know, like, I know that that thing you said was not objectively mean or bad or, or anything, but like, gosh, I had this reaction to it. And here's why I think that might be. Uh, and then similarly, being on the other side of having a partner react, like if I'm upset, having them react to something I said in a way that feels way disproportionate to what I said. And then later in talking about it, Dedeker and I have also had some of these experiences. And then later in talking about it, realizing that that certain words to them are very much associated with being so bad. Things are awful right now if those words are being used, whereas for others, they might be no big deal. And this has come up not just with Dedeker, but in other relationships too, specifically things like the fuck word, uh, mm. that that one for some people... fuck? Yeah, the fuck word, <laughs> yes. you know. The fuck word, okay. <laughs> that that one is uh can be for some people it's like whatever i say that all the time and all my friends tell each other to fuck off and whatever and it's fine but for other people that's like oof that's kind of hurtful and that's a thing you got to be careful with using or another one that's come up in relationships of mine is shut up mm-hmm. that like in my family like shut up is no big deal we tell you know we tell each other to shut up it's no no big thing but i've had partners where like saying that even in jest is super hurtful because in their family, that was a thing you were not allowed to say and you could never say. So stuff like that. Just kind of being aware of how these affect each other. And so a way to do that is to get to know your family history. Share these stories as they come up if you have to. But maybe even beforehand, just talk about, hey, what's it could be a fun topic of conversation of like, hey, what was language like for you growing up and in your previous relationships and friendships? Versus mine. It could be interesting. You might find some funny slang terms that one of you used in your family that the other didn't know about. I don't know. Uh, And just that that becoming aware of that and being respectful of that, whether that comes from a place of trauma 
from pain of actual, you know, acute trauma or more uh, sort of accumulated trauma from microaggressions over race or gender or sexual orientation or relationship style or something, or if it's something they were raised to think, you know, whatever it is, just kind of be aware of it and learn it to help you communicate better with each other. And as we love to say, do not weaponize this shit. And this is something, yeah, that I think goes back a little bit to the contempt talk that we just had. Mm. But that if you do weaponize this shit, that can be incredibly harmful and hurtful to your relationship because you truly know now, okay, like I'm not I'm not supposed to say this thing because I know that my partner has a history with it being hurtful and harmful to them. And so it makes it that much worse if you do kind of use it against them in a moment that maybe the two of you are tense. So be sure to not weaponize that shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Also, resist using words like always or never with your partner. This is a pretty good general rule all around. Uh, Using always or never is rarely ever factual. It generally will set up your partner to be trying to immediately be on the defensive and find times when always or never wasn't true if you're talking about that particular behavior. So that's one that feels like easy to me. That feels like the easy low hanging fruit. Just like take out always or never like easy. But um, but I will say has not been easy for me in the past. So I get Mm. it. Another thing related to, you know, using our words to build this culture of appreciation that involves using your words to make sure that you lift your partner up, not only in private, but in public as well. You know, and I mean, this doesn't have to be weird. I think about that episode of the IT crowd where Jen like hires Moss to be her boyfriend. and He just stands at the party all night, like talking about her amazing bionic arm and how she's just like a tennis ace and we have amazing sex. You know, it doesn't have to be like that, but it can be really little things, you know, really little things, including things like being respectful of your partner just when others are around not using your words to cut them down or interrupt them, you know, or razzing them or putting them down when around other people or at home either. It's good to avoid that at home too. Yeah. 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 I focus on complimenting your partner instead of criticizing them. Sometimes criticism is helpful, but if you do it in a kind and respectful way, we did uh, have an episode on criticism fairly recently. It was 232. Uh, We talked about criticism or how to doom your relationship. So, And then then just a few episodes ago, we talked about it again on the other side. Yeah, exactly. So look at both of those episodes if you're wondering about criticism and maybe how to do it in a better fashion or how to like take it better. Both of those things. But when in doubt, especially like if your partner is being vulnerable with you, try to compliment them or try to try to lift them up in a way in any way that you can. Yeah. And then another thing that's important to learn is how to soothe your partner when they have been triggered or activated by something that's either you said or that someone else has said and they're hurting. And that's to resist the urge to either try to explain it away or to blame them for how they're feeling, but instead to just listen and respond kindly and use the Triforce of communication to understand what they need right then and allow them to communicate that to you and give that to them. And finally, when you're fighting with your partner, if you're in the middle of an argument, do not use toxic words or phrases like comparing your partner to a past person that you had a relationship with. Or if you're in a polyamorous relationship, comparing your partner to their metamor. Yikes, that's no good. Uh, Or 
threatening to leave a relationship if you're not going to leave, if you kind of like do it in an ultimatum type way or, yeah, just a shitty fashion, <laughs> weaponizing it. Uh-huh. Not cool. Not okay. And again, like we said earlier, name calling, gaslighting, things like that. Uh, don't do it. Be respectful. We, we've we talked about better ways to fight as well. Um, how to like be good arguer on our episodes as well. So go back to some of those episodes to discuss and look at this more in depth. So now we're going to be moving on to talking about intentional language choices and about changing your language if someone has asked you to. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors for this week's episode. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on AdamMail.com and Eve'sToys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. So in the final portion of this episode, we want to talk about intentionally changing your language or asking other people to change their language or adjust their language. And I want to start off with a story. Once upon a time. No. Uh, so once upon a time, I was explaining the Triforce of Communication to a couple. Uh, they're, they're both both friends of mine, a uh, man and a woman who are in a relationship together. And I noticed that they were having a communication problem where I was watching them talk and she was clearly, seemed to me, clearly coming for a Triforce 2. And he was jumping to giving her advice when what she really wanted was commiseration and sympathy. And, and I had talked to them before about the Triforce, just kind of mentioned it. So I was just sort of like, hey, remember that Triforce thing? I think this is a, an example of, of that going on here. And it, and it got into this conversation. But something that I found was that 
as I was explaining it, you know, saying things like, well, she's coming for Triforce 2, so, you know, it's bad to give advice. You shouldn't give advice. And what you should give is this other thing, you know, is just support and whatever that he ended up sort of coming up with all sorts of interesting and and potentially valid and creative reasons why actually he should be able to respond how how he wants to and maybe that for him there's a need he needs from giving the advice and just sort of all sorts of stuff like really interesting ways of defending the fact that he was doing that and not really listening to the point of what the conversation was about and i realized that partway through that conversation that it was because the way I was talking about it and the way I was presenting it was in this, if she comes wanting this and you say the other thing that's wrong or that's bad, or you should only ever say this other thing, was using this very sort of declarative and almost accusatory language, even though that wasn't what I meant it to come across as. But it put him in a state of, now I've got to justify why I had been doing that. And when I realized that, it kind of helped me go, oh my gosh, you know what? I realize I've been kind of talking about this wrong. What I mean more is that this is a tool you can use and that if she comes to you and is wanting support and if you want to help her, this is a tool for knowing better how to give that to her. But if you want to talk about something that's for you, then yeah, what you're saying makes sense. And so it's this question of, yeah, it's not about like it's, objectively wrong, but it's who is this for? You know, are you trying to communicate in a way that's helpful and uplifting for her? Or are you just trying to communicate in a way that I guess you want to, or that you feel like you need to at that moment or something? Yeah, I think there's something really interesting. When you first told this story, you know, the thing that stood out to me was that distinction of like, when it comes to changing your approach to someone and to the words that you use as someone like really needing to check in with yourself of like, are you willing to do this because you know it's going to help the situation or do you have a different agenda of like asserting yourself in the situation? And that's probably going to change the way that you respond to being asked to change your language or change your communication approach. And I mean, I think this applies not only to times when like a partner maybe asks us to change our communication to something that's like gentler or softer or more appropriate to what they need at the time or things like that. And I think it also applies to like, if someone's asking us to change the language that we use, like around particularly using terms that maybe are harmful to them, like ableist language or sexist language or things like that. Um, So we thought that we'd spend a little bit of time talking about just some actionable things to do in particular when someone has asked you to change your language. And I think most of this applies to the latter situation of like someone specifically said like, hey, that particular term is hurtful to me. Can you maybe change change that and do something else? Um, but I mean, this is also something good that's to consider like when you're dealing with a partner as well. Um, I think the first and most important thing is to not react right away with your first reaction. And and that's been a recurring refrain that we've mm-hmm. we just talked, talked about, about many times on the show. Episode, take yeah. a breath. Yeah. Just take a breath, take a break. You know, I know that when it comes to specifically language and being asked to change language, at least in my personal experience, some of those requests are going to be easier for you than others, depending on your history, depending on just who you are, depending on your beliefs. 
you know, there's some requests where it's like, oh, yeah, super easy. I didn't even know that was a thing. Like, no problem. And then someone else may say like, hey, actually, can you not use this particular word? And that may rub you the wrong way much more so maybe because you're like, oh, well, I've used that word to identify myself in the past. Therefore, I have the right to use it or whatever it is, you know, or Um, it could be like in the example I gave with the Triforce story of especially if it's given to you in a tone with like accusation, even if you like you didn't know that that word had some sort of connotation or some meaning for people. But if you're told that you then are being ableist by using it, it can make you more likely to react defensively because you feel this need to justify why you would because I'm not that thing. I, I didn't mean it. And that's the good moment for that. Don't react right away and just, you know, if we're the one giving that criticism, if we can phrase it in a way that's more about it, it's more positive and not just like, hey, that thing you said is objectively bad. I think that's helpful for getting people to change. But even if someone comes to you with like, hey, that was bad. Take that breath and realize like, okay, regardless of how they communicated to me, it's still true. Yeah. You know, it's still true that they feel that way. Another good thing to follow is if someone comes to you, whether this is your partner or a friend or someone online or whatever, if someone comes to you and is vulnerable enough to share the fact that like, hey, this particular way that you communicated or this word that you used hurt my feelings you know, and maybe they will go ahead and offer up. It hurt my feelings because I have this particular history with that word. And that's why or maybe they won't offer why. Maybe they'll just say that that hurt, you know, that caused harm. Believe it. I don't know how else to elaborate that. Just like believe that, you know, I mean, sure, there's manipulative people out there, you know, and of course, like if you're in a toxic relationship, like there's a chance that someone could be trying to manipulate you. But like chances are it's just going to be easier to believe someone when they say that this particular word has caused them harm. And therefore, please, can you pick a different word? You know, just kind of believe it and accept it. And after this interaction happens, I know for myself personally, if I've ever been in this situation, it's a really good idea to go and research and maybe learn a little bit about why that particular word is toxic or not okay to use or maybe harmful to that particular person for whatever reason beyond just talking to them about their own personal experience with it if it is more of like an ableist term or you know sexist even racist language things like that uh, there's a huge amount of resources out there and i think the the resources are just growing and growing you know, on a yearly basis, but you can definitely just Google it and look it up. Uh, So I found a great resource out there. There are many other resources, but this is just one particular one that we found um, from AutisticHoya.com. And it's on ableist language, ableist words and terms to avoid. And then there are, uh, there's also a list of like things that you can say instead. So Perhaps just you said a thing that was ableist and instead you want to say something else. And so it gives you like a long, comprehensive list of those ableist terms and then of alternatives to use instead. Yeah, along with explanations of of why. So it's not just like, Mm -hmm. hey, you can't say this, but like, oh, hey, you know, here's some history about the word or here's some meanings you might not have realized. But my favorite thing about this list, though, is that it does have another list of like, hey, here's some other words you could use instead. Because I think sometimes people get caught up in the like, oh, there's more I and more words. Time. Well, there's more and more words I can't say. Like, I, it's like I can't even talk anymore. Because I think often we do present it as just you can't say all these. 
rather than saying, well, what can you say? What what are things that are good to say? And so they've got a list here. And I really enjoy the idea of approaching it from a place of improving your own vocabulary, if that's something you're capable of doing, of becoming more expressive with your language. And maybe a way to do it is instead of thinking, oh my gosh, overnight, I have to completely change everything I say, maybe each day or each week, pick another one to say, you know what? All right, I'm going to start replacing saying the word stupid with something else. I'm going to get more creative. So maybe you could go to this list and you'll see things like asinine or buckwild or callous or crappy or right. Like pick some other things and go, okay, I'm going to try substituting those. See how they feel. Um, I personally know over the last year or so, I've really taken to saying buck wild a lot instead of like, instead of saying that something's crazy of just like, that is buck wild because it almost better captures what I'm trying to say, which is just Mm. like, wow, I'm I'm having trouble even wrapping my head around that thing that just happened. Yeah. And I think that that's incredibly important to like change your habits because uh, many of us just get into habitual language patterns Mm -hmm. and then it just, we don't even think about it. We just say it. And I know that happens for me a lot. And so it does take a lot of practice to instead of saying crazy, say buck wild and put it into any conversation where that word might come up. Because honestly, like, for example, crazy is it it comes up in like so many different ways. Mm. If you're not just talking about like a thing is crazy or a person was acting crazy, you know, and those take that out of the equation entirely and find one of these other words uh, to change. It it can be really fun. It can be really fun. Uh, like, totally. I think similarly, if you try to take swearing out of your vocabulary and replace it with all sorts of well, that's not going to happen. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, like <laughs> do what I can. But having fun with it, you know, like replacing it with sort of silly anachronisms or right. Shakespearean saying, language. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Some of the stuff that he used to say. Like that it can be fun, that this can be a fun thing rather than like a source of stress of like, oh, I'm so focused on what I can't say. It's like, let me focus on fun new things that I can say. Yeah. And then pass it on to others like Jason. I'm going to use that now. I'm going to use Buck Wild. Thanks. That's great. (laughs) Like that's a perfect example of passing it on to another person. Um, Yeah. So practice makes makes perfect. And I think it's important for people to to just think about their language. It just take a moment and think it's good. I, I did want to have a quick note on language reclamation, because I think this is very important right now in this like political and cultural moment in time that we have. And language reclamation is a thing that a lot of people in various communities use. And the pejorative or derogatory terms that are out there, and there are many, sometimes are being reclaimed by the group of people for whom they were originally intended. And I want to make it clear that generally it's only okay for the people who have reclaimed that word to use that word. So the big example is it's not okay for white people to say the N-word, whereas it's okay for African-American people who have reclaimed that word to use it. So when looking at language reclamation or just language in general, I think one really has to examine the historical context of a word and think about the negative ways, the really hurtful, harmful ways in which a word has been used by groups of people over time. 
And so along those lines, reclamation and language reclamation, I think there are reasons why people out there are doing it and why people are interested in doing it and why it is a thing now. Linguist Robin Brontsema wrote a whole long paper on reclaiming words, and she talked about like the reasons as to why people out there are reclaiming words and why it's important. And there are three distinct reasons why people are doing it. Yeah, I thought that these three reasons were really interesting, and I thought that they put this together in a really cool way. So they talk about the fact that reclaiming words and reclaiming language, first of all, changes the meaning of the word from pejorative to positive for the particular community that that has been that word has been used against. Uh, It's also possible to essentially exploit the stigma of the word itself, and therefore the word now acts as a reminder of the history of this word and the history of the fact that this particular group of people has been subjected to unjust treatment, which I think is really interesting, as well as that it serves to neutralize a word by denying it to those who want to use it to oppress or harm. And now that one really, really got me thinking because I started thinking about the word slut. Which is another example, slut, um, which is another example of reclaimed language, you know, that there's been a big movement to reclaim that word by feminists, by people in the sex positive community and stuff like that. It's not really a word I've ever, I guess, personally, individually reclaimed for myself or a lot of people myself. A lot of people do. Definitely. However, this particular reason that this linguist cites about this is a way of neutralizing the word and kind of denying it to people who want to use it for for bad, for evil. Because mm-hmm. it makes me think about, you know, like literally every time I do any kind of interview on any kind of remotely approaching the mainstream media source, like a magazine or a show or anything like that, it's like, of course, in the comment section, it's going to be just a bunch of people like saying slut, 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 slut. But it's at a point now where, I mean, it's not like I'm reading that and being like, oh, they're complimenting me. That's great. You know, I know that they're intending to use it to cause harm, but it doesn't. Because for me, that word feels like it's been neutralized in the community that I'm in. And also for me, it just feels like, uh, can you not come up with anything more clever than that? (laughs) You know, (laughs) Um, like of all things that you think is going to harm me, this is not one of them. This is not on the list of words that is going to harm me. You know, now I don't want that to say that, like, if a word has been reclaimed, that anyone can use it without harm necessarily, like it can still be used with harm. But that was a really interesting way of thinking about it, about it kind of like neutralizing the charge of the people who would normally want to use it for harm. Yeah. Again, sort of as a a defense from the community that it's used against, like as a defense against that word rather than saying, yeah, now it's okay for everyone to say it. Uh, no, though, that's not what we're saying. Though, actually, I think I think actually queer is a really good example of a word that's been so thoroughly neutralized to the point where I would say that is a word that anyone can say. And I know you were kind of debating in your head earlier whether that's true or not. But like when we talk about things like the queer community or queer spaces or queer people, whereas like queer has you know, originally was used to mean strange, to mean what queer means, which is to say that they're strange, but that it's been not only reclaimed, but also uh, given other meaning, right? That queer then kind of has been given this meaning of, hey, this is this bigger term that can catch a lot of things that saying gay doesn't encompass or saying trans doesn't quite encompass or saying 
whatever relationship anarchist or polyamorous doesn't quite encompass that maybe this is a word that again it's its boundaries change a little bit depending on who's defining it but that it's been so thoroughly sort of neutralized that like it's even it's almost sounds comical to imagine someone using queer as an insult because of how much it's just used as a normal term now Maybe I'm just biased because I'm in that community. But well, yeah, like it is this huge overarching community. I mm-hmm. guess if someone was like queer to me as a derogatory insult, it'd just be like, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. right. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that's, yeah. yeah. And that's that's what I think so interesting about this. Whereas on the other hand, uh, like within the gay male community, there's for a long time been a movement for reclaiming the word fag. But that's still like not okay for someone who's not no. a gay man himself to say, right? And and so it's like there's a spectrum here. It's not just like, oh, you do it and then it's done. And maybe certain words will never get there. Uh, but it's just interesting to kind of look at that and how that can affect the way language is even used now. So we wanted to wrap up this episode by just encouraging with all of this, language is something that, as we said at the beginning, is incredibly powerful and it can both cause a lot of hurt but it can also really help and lift us up and sort of be the the beginning of the solution to our problems as well and that's so cool and 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 when talking about language it can become very overwhelming because it's something we use constantly every day all day to communicate whether that's writing online whether it's speaking to people in our normal life, whether it's at work, whether it's in our personal lives, we're using language all the time. And so it can feel a little bit overwhelming. But we just wanted to try to encourage everyone to look at it, if possible for you, as a way to enrich yourself and grow yourself. And even in little ways, offer more care to the people around you by being just a little bit more careful about our words. See, look, I even used wordplay in the way I well said done. that. Well done. Good job. <laughs> so meta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we just wanted to encourage everyone to, to think about that and to try to look at language improvement and change in ourselves, whether that's in our relationships or in the types of words that we use or in hopefully removing contempt from the way we talk about anyone, but especially our partners. Uh, that to look at it as this really positive and incredibly powerful thing that you could be doing, even just a little bit at a time. So we're going to jump into a bonus episode for our patrons. Uh, we're going to talk about political correctness and specifically PC culture, uh, which is kind of raises some some hackles of some people sometimes, but we're going to get into some statistics about it, uh, how the words PC culture themselves have taken on specific meaning, right, a like little bit more about that. Words that talk about language have taken on yeah. meaning of their own, that then we can talk about it on a language podcast. This is just exactly. so meta. Whoa, wow. I know, it's super meta. Wait, do yeah. we suddenly turn into a language podcast? I don't j- Don't give him any ideas, Jennifer, <laughs> please. Good <laughs> Lord. Okay. Uh, we do want to hear from you all out there about your own language, like how it's evolved over time, what types of things are challenging for 
you in your life, like what you don't say to your partner because it's triggering to them or what you don't want your partners to say to you because it's triggering to you. Things like that. Personal experiences with how language has affected you over the course of your life. So the best place to share your thoughts and the answer to this question with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat you can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Onan from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.